Welcome to episode four of History Stories for My Son, a podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. This week, I will tell you the story of Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. If you like what I'm doing with this podcast, please rate and review me on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That really is the best way that word of this podcast will spread uh, and uh, the the easiest thing that you can do to uh, support the pod. So if you would take 30 seconds to do that, I would very much appreciate it. I think every American over the age of 30 has probably heard the ballad of Davy Crockett. By coincidence, my name is David, and I was called Davy for most of my childhood. So, of course, I felt a certain kinship to the most famous Davy in history. I even got myself a coonskin hat that I wore until I'm sure my mother probably threw it out. Davy Crockett is one of those figures in history that is almost made to stick in a child's imagination. The buckskin, the coonskin hat, the rifle, creeping through the woods, hunting him a bear. He embodies an archetype that's really at the center of American cultural identity, that of the frontiersman, the woodsman, the explorer, the man who goes to nature to escape the restraints of his civilization even while pushing out its boundaries. A man of two worlds. But he was not just a folk hero. He was a real man, whose extraordinary life coincided with the early days of westward exploration and expansion, back when the United States of America was a very young country. He was not born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, like it says in the song, but he was born in 1786 near the mountains in the land that would later become Tennessee. At the time of Crockett's birth, his birthplace was in a breakaway territory known as Franklin, but it declared its independence from North Carolina two years earlier. Though its leaders had hoped Franklin would become a state, it fell just shy of the necessary votes in Congress, and so the area became part of the state of Tennessee when that state was formed in 1796. Crockett's father was a poor frontier farmer slash failed serial entrepreneur. Crockett's childhood was characterized by watching his father try his hand as a homesteader, a grist mill operator, or even a tavern operator, uh, and just fail at everything, struggling to make ends meet. Several times his dad uh, busted so badly that he lost his land or went bankrupt, and the Crockett's would pick up, move on, fail again, and repeat. The family was so hard up that uh, Davy was indentured out several times to pay off his father's debts, meaning his father basically loaned him out to work for free for someone he owed money to uh, until Davy was able to work off his father's debt. 
Uh, and when he wasn't indentured, he was uh, haunting, helping his family survive by bringing back game. The song, a uh, famous song from the 1950s Disney movie, uh, says he killed himself a bar when he was only three. Now, that's a folk tale, of course. There's zero basis to think he killed a bear when he was three, but he did start hunting from a young age, and age kids would still be in grade school today. Uh, he was out in the woods, tracking game, hunting, shooting, exploring, uh, on what was very much uh, the frontier of uh, American settlement, heavily wooded, scarcely populated hinterlands. You can imagine young Davy, muskets in his hands, coming across a black bear in some trackless Tennessee woods, taking careful aim, knowing if he doesn't get it in one that the bear will be enraged and come at him. But he was always a dead shot. You can picture him lining up his aim, slowly expelling a breath, and firing. I don't know exactly at what age that first happened, but bear hunting was Crockett's signature for much of his life, and it's well documented that an older Davy Crockett largely supported himself. Later, his wife and kids hunting bears and selling their valuable pelts, meats, and oil for profit. He claimed on one occasion he killed a bear with a knife. Uh, he famously had only four days of formal schooling when he was 13 before he got into a fight with a bully and uh, started playing hooky for fear of being punished when his father tried to give him a whooping for skipping school, he promptly ran away to join a cattle drive, and he spent the next couple of years, uh, two and a half years, almost three, working a series of odd jobs ranging from farmhand, teamster, uh, to apprentice hatter. And by the time he came back home at around age 16, He'd grown and changed so much that his family didn't recognize him as for, at first. Uh, following the emotional reunion, Davy agreed to stick around long enough to help his father pay off yet more debts that the man had accumulated, which he did by indenturing out again to work off the debts. Uh, less than a year later, he left for good. A few years went by fairly uneventfully. He got married, hunted, tried his hand at a variety of odd jobs, generally lived the life of a poor man on the frontier. Then came the War of 1812 and the Creek War. The two were somewhat related. The U.S. declared war on Britain in 1812 for a variety of reasons, the biggest being the British, who were at war with Napoleon's France and seized hundreds of American ships bound for French ports, and impressed, basically kidnapped, a large number of American sailors to serve on British ships. Being as they were fighting a much larger war in Europe, the Brits sought to keep the Americans busy, in part by arming Native American tribes, including certain factions of the Creek tribe. 
Uh, it's worth noting here that other factions of the Creek, as well as many Cherokee, were on the American side, so it was a complicated conflict. In any event, Davy Crockett served in various units from 1813 to 1815, the year the War of 1812 ended, serving largely as a scout and employing his hunting skills to help keep his fellow soldiers fed. By all accounts, he was a decent soldier, rising to the rank of sergeant, though he didn't see a lot of actual combat. After the war, he got into politics, largely motivated by a desire to help poor settlers like his own family, who he believed were held down by unfair taxes and complicated laws around land grants. At the time, the government encouraged people to settle on the frontier by giving them land in exchange for doing the work of planting and farming that land for the first time. Farming new land was back-breaking work. Uh, oftentimes, the frontier farmer would have to cut down uh, the trees of a forest himself to clear land, pull out the stumps, uh, pull out the rocks, and uh, plow up the hard, never-broken sod uh, with pl plows pulled by oxen or mules. Uh, it was all day long, uh, very hard, very physically intense labor that would take years uh, to really break new land in. But oftentimes, the folks who actually did all of that work would then get cheated out of their land because the system for granting land was very complicated with lots of arbitrary rules that poor farmers had a hard time understanding. And so, oftentimes, the land that poor farmers had worked so hard to develop would wind up in the hands of wealthy investors from back east who were able to game the system better than the poor farmers. So Crockett did what he could, first in the Tennessee legislature, then in the United States Congress, to stand up for poor farmers. In Congress, he made quite a splash because of his rustic, backwoods ways. Even at the time, men who made it in Congress tended to come from wealthier, more refined backgrounds. Some of his colleagues made fun of him. Newspapers opposed to his politics portrayed him as an ignorant country buffoon. But Crockett learned that the trick of turning an insult uh, into an asset, uh, he actually played up his backwoodsiness, for instance, commissioning a famous portrait for himself in hunting garb and a coonskin cap, rifle in hand. And uh, he was also famous for telling folksy, exaggerated stories of his own frontier adventures. He portrayed himself uh, as he was, uh, a champion of ordinary folks against the hoity-toity fancy folk back east. He so captured the national imagination that while he was serving in Congress, the most popular play in the country, The Lion of the West, was about a rough-and-tumble Kentucky congressman who was a thinly disguised version of Crockett. A line from the character gives you a flavor of the portrayal, he said. Uh, this is the character who's modeled after Crockett. My name is Nimrod Wildfire. Half horse, half alligator, and a touch of earthquake. And that's got the prettiest sister, fastest horse, and ugliest dog in the district. And can outrun, outkick, outjump, knock down, drag out, and whip any man in all of Kentucky. 
Crockett embraced the portrayal and went to the play when it came to Washington. Uh, there's a famous moment there where the actor who portrayed this character saw Crockett in the audience, bowed to him. Crockett got up and bowed back, and the crowd went wild. Unfortunately, Crockett never achieved what he set out to in Congress. He introduced several bills meant to reform the land title system to, again, help the poor farmers to keep the land that they'd cleared, but uh, his bills floundered, in large part because Crockett got on the wrong side of Andrew Jackson, the Democratic president at the time. Uh, Crockett, despite initially being a Democrat himself, uh, was the only member of the Tennessee delegation to oppose the president's Indian Removal Act. This was a bill to forcibly relocate southeastern Indian tribes to more remote, less valuable lands west of the Mississippi River. Despite having served under Jackson during the War of 1812, Crockett felt he just couldn't support the president in this. He was quoted as saying, I believe it was a wicked, unjust measure. I voted against this Indian bill, and my conscience yet tells me that I gave a good, honest vote, and one that I believe will not make me ashamed in the Day of Judgment. He, uh, he saw it as fundamentally unfair, as basically stealing uh, the Indians' land uh, under a very thin pretext. And it's kind of fascinating that Crockett saw things this way. Like most frontier folk at the time, he'd had his share of clashes with native peoples. Uh, his aunt and uncle had uh, actually been killed in an Indian raid uh, when they were just children. He never met them, but he would have been aware of that story. And yet he also fought alongside natives during the War of 1812, and living as he did on the frontier, likely knew a lot more American Indians personally than most of the lawmakers of Congress. And so my suspicion is that he thought of them as people, as individuals, the individuals that he knew, uh, and uh, his instinct to stand up against bullying, uh, same instinct that drove him to fight that bully back in his childhood school, kicked in. Uh, unfortunately, his position was incredibly unpopular in his own party, and he lost his seat in Congress. He was able to get it back two years later as a member of the opposition National Republican uh, or anti-Jacksonian party before being defeated a final time quitting politics. Uh, overall, his time in Washington was fairly frustrated. He tried really hard uh, to help those poor farmers, but because of uh, his opposition to the Indian Removal Bill, uh, he'd really uh, become persona non grata and was not able to accomplish the things he hoped he would. Uh, so he returned to Tennessee in 1835, a frustrated man looking for the next thing and, and looking, frankly, to get away from uh, the East Coast, Washington, its its politics. He wanted to get back to the frontier, so that's where he belonged. And uh, he looked out and he saw what was happening in Texas. Uh, and 
I think uh, he saw the next frontier for him. Even by 19th century American standards, Texas was a wide open territory with lots of land and opportunity. Um, and uh, Crockett sympathized with the Texians who chafed against the Mexican government who ruled that territory at the time. Uh, Mexico at the time was ruled by a man named President General Santa Ana. Santa Ana uh, had centralized authority uh, in himself and done away with a lot of the institutions that had uh, protected individual rights and limited his authority as the president. He repealed the Mexican Constitution. He abolished uh, state legislature in Texas. Uh, he gave himself absolute power, and he antagonized the Texans by banning immigrants from the United States, where many residents of Northeast Texas had come from. Finally, things came to a head after Mexican troops tried to disarm a local militia at the town of Gonzales. Locals fought back and drove the Mexican troops off, setting off a chain of events that led uh, Santa Ana to lead an army of reconquest into Texas to bring these uh, pesky Texans to heel. And hearing about all of this, Crockett decided to join the Texian cause. He left Tennessee in November of 1835. His daughter Matilda later wrote that she distinctly remembered the last time she saw her father. She said he was dressed in his hunting suit, wearing a coonskin cap and carried a fine rifle presented to him by friends in Philadelphia. He seemed very confident the morning he went away that he would soon have us all to join him in Texas. That was the last time she saw him. He arrived in Texas in January of 1836, and together with 65 other men, many of whom had traveled with him, volunteered to fight for the provisional government of Texas for a term of six months. He and his men arrived at the Alamo Mission in San Antonio on February 8th, 1836. A Mexican army under Santa Ana arrived in the area on February 23rd and laid siege to the Alamo. The Texans were hopelessly outnumbered. The Texan commander, William Travis, had initially less than 200 men under his command. That included Davy Crockett and his volunteers. The Mexican army around the Alamo was more than 2,000 strong. So the Texans were literally outnumbered 10 to 1, at least. To make matters worse, the Alamo was not a real military fort. It had been a Catholic mission, basically a church complex with walls around it. Uh, so it, it was not a true fortress, uh, which the defenders would have needed uh, to hold off such disproportionate numbers. But they held out for a while. Again, Santa Ana arrived February 23rd. 
The siege went on until March 6th. Crockett played an active role in the defense. He and his men were unusually good rifle shots and functioned as sharpshooters, picking off advancing Mexican artillerists who kept trying to get closer and closer to the mission. He led a scouting mission with two other men, sneaking past the Mexicans surrounding them and bringing in a small group of reinforcements. It's worth pausing for a second and considering the courage it would have taken to go back inside that mission. Uh, he he'd snuck out, he'd gotten past the Mexican pickets, and the reinforcements weren't that many, maybe a few dozen. Uh, he could have left, no one could have stopped him. But he chose to return to a situation where he knew he had to know that he was hopelessly outnumbered, and that it was only a matter of time before the Mexicans overwhelmed them. But he led those men back, and he was there on March 6th when the Mexicans launched their final attack. Although the defenders fought valiantly, killing perhaps 600 of Santa Ana's troops, they were eventually overwhelmed by sheer numbers and were slaughtered to the last man. How Crockett himself died is a minor historical mystery. There are two conflicting contemporaneous accounts. According to a former American slave serving as a cook for one of Santa Anna's officers, Crockett's body was found in the barracks surrounded by, quote, no less than 16 Mexican corpses, with Crockett's knife buried in one of them. An account by another of Santa Anna's officers claims that he was among, Crockett, that is, was among a small number of defenders who were captured, and that Santa Anna, who had ordered that no quarter be given, meaning that none of the defenders were to be left alive, was furious, absolutely furious, that his orders to kill every last man had been disobeyed. And according to this account, he immediately ordered their execution, and Mexican soldiers bayoneted the disarmed prisoners, including Crockett, to death. There are even some other versions that have floated up with varying degrees of credibility, but all agree on two things. He died there, and he was among the last the defenders to do so. For my part, I'll always favor the version from the old Disney movie, with Crockett standing to the last surrounded by enemies, swinging his spent rifle as a club as the screen fades to black and the ballad of Davy Crockett plays one last time. What is the legacy of Davy Crockett? Part of it is remember the Alamo, Texan independence, uh, the uh, sacrifice of those men, including Crockett at the Alamo, inspired the Texan Revolution and became the rallying cry. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. It was said, shouted again and again and again to raise troops and to keep up morale uh, until the Texans won their independence. So that's part of the legacy. Part of the legacy is also as a symbol of the frontier of a certain idea of the American West. 
He was a folk hero, really one of the uh, one of the first real folk heroes, a real person who became a folk hero. Part of his legacy is his respect and, and kinship for American Indians and uh, his belief that their rights should be respected, something which uh, was not a popular position in his time, um, but which he stood for on principle and and the example of which I think probably uh, carries down to modern times is one of the reasons why attitudes have changed on that subject. And Crockett was a, a man of two worlds. He was born out of the old civilization of Europe, but he was also shaped by the new frontier where a man could live life on his own terms and decide what he believed. And that duality, that merger of the old civilization with the independence and freedom of a new beginning, even to this day, that's a big part of the American cultural identity. In some sense, he was one of the original self-made men who crafted an image that captured the imagination and resonated through history. His story captured my imagination when I was just a kid, and it stuck there for the rest of my life. And if I've done my job right, his story is now stuck in yours. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. <laughs>